0: From 11FS, I'm Jason Bates, and this is Fintech Insider News. Coming up on today's show, hacks, hacks, more hacks and more hacks. Alipay's push to take over the world. And raccoons shut down a Canadian bank. All this and more on today's Fintech Insider News. Welcome to Fintech Insider News, coming to you live from the amazing and ever-growing 11FS office in WeWork London. That's the Old Gate Tower one, for those who know it. My name's Jason Bates. I'm from 11FS, a challenger consultancy that helps banks, insurers, capital markets, asset managers, and basically everyone do things that are truly digital, from coming up with new propositions to actually launching them in the market. Today, I'm joined by my lovely 11FS colleague, David Breer. Hello. And Simon Taylor. Hello. Where have you both
1: been this week? Yeah, so there was that little thing at the Lords. Um, That was quite nice. Um, That's not the cricket ground, right? (laughs) No, the House of Lords uh, in the Palace of Westminster. They were kind enough to invite me to talk about the future of uh, blockchain in the UK, blockchain policy, what are they going to do about ICOs and that sort of stuff. And I think uh, really exciting, really forward-thinking people, and obviously a lot of client work and people talking about how do they get the best and what's the right time to invest in blockchain and really make, make a go. I do love it, though. Basically, he put on like his best fintech insider T-shirt
2: to go to the their <laughs> House of Lords and discuss this. It was pretty cool. It was a clean one and an Eleven FS hoodie. Nice, David. Uh, busy week. I am basically turning into being a recruitment person right now, which is uh, kind of a full-time effort, which is nice. So uh, yeah, most of my time right now is uh, trying to fill up the list of uh, opportunities that we've got based on some of the things that we're doing either in 11FS or with one of the banks we're building, which is super, super cool. So uh, a bit more sleep next week might be nice. But, yeah, uh, I've,
0: I've been feeling it. Uh, lots of new work, lots of new proposals, new propositions in wealth, new digital propositions in credit cards, loyalty, some vision work for one of the big players. Uh, I just need to sleep this weekend.
2: I have to say I'm a bit disappointed we're doing a FinTech Insider News not in front of a live audience this week, aren't you? This feels, <laughs> feels weird. It's like quiet here. What's going on?
0: Anyway, I feel like this is going way off track and, uh, you know, as I'm on point this week, I feel that's my responsibility to bring us back around. Luckily, we have some guests to keep us in line as well. Joining us this week, making her FinTech Insider debut, we have Valentina Christensen from Oak North. Thanks for coming on the show, Valentina. How are you?
3: Very good, thanks. Glad to be here.
0: And how's your week been?
3: Uh, it's been good. It's been pretty busy. We've had um, a few a few deals that have closed. So, um, yeah, it's it's been good. It's never a dull day at Oak North.
0: I'm sure. And alongside Valentina, am I saying that right, by the way? Yes, you no, are. Boom. Take that, David Breer. Smug. Uh, alongside her, we have our resident core banking guru. It's Andra Sanea. How are you doing, Andra?
4: Hi. Very well, thank you.
0: Have you been busy this week?
4: Uh, preparing workshops for our clients. And preparing to start a PhD next week.
0: Ooh. Starting a PhD. Back to school. It's the thug life right there. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Let's get on with this week's news. So first up, David... You're going to talk about Monzo, which slightly freaks me out. Uh, Monzo tests in-app energy provider switching feature.
2: This is a, an, an interesting one. So this is uh, Monzo have come through and, and started implementing some of the uh, new features. So they've, they've rolled out to, I think it was 95 current account holders that they've got, uh, the option to kind of jump into one of the partnerships that they've actually gone through. I, I think this is an interesting one, but uh, there's, as it was sort of pointed out by some of the people over on fintechinsidernews.com, it's, it's kind of like Monzo are not quite on the front foot on this one to a certain degree. So, you know, there's actually quite a few companies out there. Yolt is one of the examples that the guys were sort of talking about that have sort of done this one already. Um, it's good to see, I think, Monzo starting to probably bizarrely follow in the footsteps of, of Starling with some of the partnerships. And it did actually highlight in the article something that I didn't know, which was that the uh, head of partnerships over at Monzo is former Facebook, which uh, pretty impressive hire that they managed to get that, uh, that guy in there. So, I'm sure there's something interesting coming and it actually does reference that there's about 70 or 80 companies that those, these guys have actually been looking to partner with that are coming through in the, the, the pipeline. So at the peak of this, if we've got you know, 70, 80 different types of partnerships on the platform to really kind of expand out on the uh, the, the current account offering, then that starts to be quite
1: impressive. There's nothing wrong with a me-too play. Um, it is definitely a me-too play, as you, as you point out, uh, but... That next set of partnerships is, is going to be the really critical piece. Who are they going to be and, and what value is it going to add? Because the thing about a marketplace bank, as we've talked about it with Starling and with Monzo and others, this is where you start driving value for customers. This is where you start making a difference. I want to see this go live. I have a horrible feeling that trying to manage lots of partners could be really, really difficult and painful. Is it going to work? I want to see it. I'm, I, jury's out for me.
3: Yeah, but I think it's also, I mean, it's really the first time we're seeing also the, a bit more of the, the revenue model that they're trying to put in place. I mean, obviously, if you read their um, annual accounts, was that they were losing about £55 per customer, I think. So I think they said that of the 13 of the 95 current account holders they tested this with who actually did uh, do the switch, they made about, you know, 40 or £50. So I guess this is sort of helping them to go some way to making up some of that, that
2: yeah. loss. I, th- I think it's an interesting model, though, isn't it? Because essentially what's happening is they're, They've gone to market before most people would actually go to market. So like the, the balancing out of sort of losing money over sort of cost, cost of acquisition. Actually, it's sort of slight false economy, isn't it? You know, most people would still be in the lab trying to work out what those things were and wouldn't actually have, what is it? 350,000, 400,000 customers now. So it's it's an interesting sort of dynamic that's sort of playing out. But, uh, you know, good to see those guys start uh, releasing some features and functionality. And uh, hopefully this sort of uh, starts a bit of a a stream of that stuff coming.
0: Yeah, well, um, and I'm sure a lot of it is down to Phil Hewinson, who is their new... Uh, head of partnerships and uh, the sort of platform side. So Phil originally was at Facebook for as a strategic partner manager around their product partnerships, and before that, head of audience network at EMEA. So if there's anyone who knows that sort of partnership world, then it's got to be sort of Facebook as you get into that. But the energy uh, switching sort of integration wasn't my favourite uh, Monzo integration of recent days I don't know if we spoke about the Deliveroo uh, one recently where if you buy something on Deliveroo then in some way it seems to work out whether you're a Monzo customer I don't know whether that's looking to see if the app's on the phone or looking for some key or some some link scheme that's in there I don't know how it works but essentially if it sees that you're a Monzo customer it gives you the opportunity to split the bill with energy customers through through your Monzo account so i love this uh this idea that not only does banking live in your app and sort of live in that web chat but it actually lives in the apps you interact with sort of out there in those end-to-end journeys and i think that's a uh it's a great thing in fact on our pulse platform we have a video of that which is which is pretty cool
4: When I read this, I I was wondering how they have implemented it. I haven't seen the feature uh, feature, uh, live, but uh, it it seems to me like it's a sort of an offering or it should be linked to to an activity in your account. Even if uh, looking at the comments on the the forum, people didn't understand how they were targeted and so on. It was impressive how much attention uh, drew uh, among uh, customers. I cannot imagine one of the big banks uh, doing something with such a small number of customers and everybody even noticing. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, of course, once you know, the current account's in full flow and your utility bills are coming out, then you could see how the end-to-end journey becomes much richer in terms of seeing that there's a you know utility bill or electricity bill, and it's 20% higher than it was, and how does that compare to everyone in your street? And actually, you could move to one of these suppliers, and you can really see how that might come together.
1: And what I like about this is it's a trend that we need to see more of. It doesn't matter to me so much that it's Monzo, it doesn't matter to me that it's happening in the uk if you're in the wherever you are in the world something that's just kind of useful it's helping me switch bills that also change the revenue model of financial services is really interesting the traditional banks aren't necessarily thinking in in terms of a new business model they're trying to think of net present value and how do they lend more and how do they charge more in fees this is potentially proving that a new business model might work forget monzo for a second and think about the business model that's that's my key point
4: if I may add, I think uh, also the way it, it was implemented is, is interesting because before, if you look at Lloyds, they tried to do something similar by implementing Codlytics which required a uh, huge initial investment, uh, delivery, blah, blah, blah. But this is more punctual. So you can uh, hook and unhook depending on how uh, successful it is and um, it's, it's amazing it's a completely I love that different point, yeah it's a completely different
0: how the how we design the original information architecture you know it was always made to be extendable that you know the fact you 've got a feed rather than a statement enables these kinds of messages to to make their way into the uh, into the app I think a, a lot of thought has to go into. The banking app, not only as an app that's going to show transactions, but how actually you start to build in, uh, you know, new
2: new features and functionalities and services. Well, and, and that's you know the argument for why some of this stuff is actually easier to do from scratch than it is before. You know, I know when when I was at Lloyd's, the implementation for that features you're talking about, Andrew, actually just interjecting stuff between transactional element on statements was a bloody nightmare, quite frankly. So you know, doing doing that from from fresh, you know, makes it far easier. I'd say. Well, from one challenger bank to another,
0: Valentina. uh, I see that there was a host submitted on fintechinsidernews.com by Alex, Alex S. Uh, Starling aims to fly with $40 million fundraising.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is um, also an interesting one. I think this is um, primarily because they're looking to sort of go go global. I think they're starting with the um, Republic of Ireland. They got their their banking passport for um, for the Republic of Ireland in June, and they sort of I think that the press release was uh, sort of saying first Ireland, then the world. <laughs> uh, um, but I mean, it would be interesting to see if uh, if this fundraise actually is in different tranches, a bit like their last one. I think we saw it was that once they got their license, then they would get sort of the first batch of funding. Then once they sort of reached another milestone, they'd get the next batch. So it'll be um, interesting to see if that's the same with this one.
1: So uh, what do you think this, this funding's for? You know. Well, before I get to the funding, I just want to talk about how cheeky that headline is. You didn't do it justice. Starling aims to fly. Uh, come on, like, <laughs> just can, can we just give that some love? Uh, totally didn't get that at all. But yeah, <laughs> and the funding. I guess I mean, as Valentina says, it is about international expansion. But what I think interesting about that international expansion, they've started with the Republic of Ireland, and the Republic of Ireland, of course, post Brexit, is in the EU, and it gives them access to all of the EU regulation, and it gives them access to potentially all of the EU markets, whilst Staying English-speaking whilst having access to Dublin from a tax perspective and the talent that's in Dublin, it makes a lot of sense. I think it's an interesting strategic move, uh, and I want want to look into this more and see what the investor makeup looks like. But it's interesting that it's one of those trade-offs
0: between focus on one product, one territory, one thing, and really nail it, versus actually starting are doing like a hell of a lot they've got their sort of faster payments integration play they've got their current account push they've got their marketplace now they've got Ireland. you know if you say don't don't fight a war on two fronts this is like five fronts that you're you're pushing on so i i'd argue that i'm sure a fair amount of this 40 million is actually about scaling the team and and trying to deal with
1: you know, expansion on five fronts at the same time. This is very different to what you'd see in traditional tech, where you'd have one single product and you could go global, because doing, uh, you know, sharing pictures of your cat that disappear uh, are very, very different to getting regulated in a number of different jurisdictions around the world and managing people's money. And I think people in tech sometimes forget that finance comes with that regulation overhead and the difficulty of being regulated. Uh, and, and your point about focus is, is really interesting as well, because in the world of tech, you Do one thing and you do it extremely well Uh, and and potential criticism of Starling, or maybe it's just ambition, is they're, they're starting on a lot of different fronts. It's international expansion and it's lots of different integrations and lots of different products all at once. I think this is great, right? Why settle for one revenue stream when you can have like five, right?
2: You know, and actually, I, 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 to be honest, I, if they can do this, I think this points to them having seriously good technology in, inside because actually if you can scale up and have five or six different teams running at these different things and not bumping into each other, then actually it kind of points to them probably putting everything in place that they should have done. Well, I've been really impressed by Revolut as well recently, who just seemed
0: to consistently smash it in terms of new feature, new territory, new functionality, you know, they're really sort of, uh, there, are, there are some fintechs out there who are just consistently delivering new on a regular basis. And that, that takes effort, especially while scaling with, you know, a two and a half thousand customers a day or something that they're, they're growing at.
4: Yeah. Technically, I don't think they have now a problem of scale uh, because they have completely new tech. So even if they add half of Ireland, they shouldn't have <laughs> a, problem of, a problem of scale. But in terms of team, uh, yeah, you're right. It, uh, it requires effort to expand to a new, a new territory. And I think it's the first challenger bank that we see doing uh, contingency planning for Brexit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Get off the island strategy. It keeps coming back, right? So
0: moving on submitted to Fintech Insider News by Fintech McFintech Face uh, I think actually people are now just picking names that are actually that's hard for us to say. Uh, yeah. It's actually Ollie, isn't it? Um, here's a story in programmableweb.com, which I, I remember from a long time ago in terms of a directory of APIs. I think the last time I looked, there was something like 11,000 APIs listed on, programmable on programmableweb.com. So someone's listed a, a, or suggested an article that's entitled W3C Payment Request API is now being implemented in all major
1: browsers which sounds huge does I mean you think about the major browsers being Firefox Chrome Safari and then internet whatever it is these days I don't know what I my, edge sorry <laughs> yeah it's just like sorry Microsoft but come on uh, but this this is the idea that uh, there's a simple API that is comes from w3c of course the standards body that defined HTML and CSS most of the standards that we use to consume the internet today are defined by this body and this is defining a really simple way way to accept card payments and for those card payment details to travel across the internet really easily, either from your bank or from some other card provider, so that when you're going to make a payment, those card details would be pre-populated really easily. And there have been some apps that have done this, some fintechs that have done it, um, sort of like a last pass, but for your card details for, for quite some time. But making this a standard is really interesting because instead of going, if you go to buy something from your favorite online retailer... It's it's proven fact that sixty five percent of people drop out during that cart journey. There's so much dropout because there isn't a one click payment, and we've seen Apple Pay and Android Pay and others, and we talk about them a lot on this show. This could be a real. Flip because how will those tech companies that have been trying to own that payment experience or Visa and MasterCard and banks that have been trying to own that payment experience react to an interoperable standard? Uh, and also what I like about this is it's not just for the desktop web and browser-based web. It's also going to work with some of the apps themselves on mobile devices. So how that integrates and plays in the mobile space will be really, really critical. Although I don't see
0: it as such a big thing because I, th- I in fact, I was talking to my... Mike Kelly, uh, a few minutes ago, about how it's interesting to use the W3C model. In banking APIs and how actually there's a, a place in which standards are great but in, in the web world, implementation then led on to standardisation and I think that's the case here where we've seen Chrome for a long time actually have, you know, remember your card details and the not remember your CVC code you know, the secret three digit number but the expiry date and which card would you like to, to use and because we've seen a few nice implementations now the guys have got together and said actually, if we look at who 's doing everything to, you know how that all works let's let 's just standardize it so that it you know everyone really knows how it works
1: yes, there is a standardizing something that was sort of already happening bit to it, but I think that 's why the mobile side of this is more interesting because yes they 've kind of had that in the mobile version of Chrome and the mobile version of Safari for some time, but as that creeps into the app ecosystem that 's where it starts to really. Interfere with how the payments plans of these tech giants was really running. Um, But also we've seen W3C try and do this for at least a decade. Um, They've been trying to get payments on the internet working, in fact, since the early 90s. So whether or not this actually becomes a thing or not is is a fair, fair question. I'm with you on this one, Simon. I think
2: they've been having a crack at doing this for a long time. If they were going to do it, I think they probably would have done it by now. And uh, I think this is probably going to get consumed by other things doing this slightly better than they are.
4: I think this initiative can eliminate many use cases for which PayPal is used nowadays. So basically, it, it eliminates the intermediary between the merchant and, uh, and the user. Why is that? Why is that? Because, um, um, for example, you had a merchant um, who wanted to take payment from a party and from a user and would use PayPal, but basically what you had in PayPal were your credit card details stored and it was a convenience for many to to do that. But now you have it in your browser directly, so...
1: So the PayPal so value-added...
4: So yeah, so the merchant would be able to provide basically the same experience that PayPal used for... Mm. for Without many,
2: PayPal, just that one-click one, one click button sort yeah, of press. Yeah, but, like, yeah. Keychain in Safari does this already, right?
1: You know, like, you literally... this Safari? And, this, and this was Jason's point, right? So Chrome does it keychain does it in safari like the browsers have been doing this for a while it's now a standard but what it's kind of missing is that paypal button it's kind of missing that thing that i
3: click that
4: so yeah so the implementation in the merchant websites in a standardized way that that that's it missing i think
3: yeah i mean i i I would say i think you know it probably comes back down to the um I think perhaps of the perception of the trust here, because when you look at, uh, you know, I don't know, Amazon or, or apps like that that I have on my phone, where it is very much that, that one click. And I don't think I've really been on a computer and actually put in all of my card details for a really long time. And, you know, if I was thinking if I was at work and I wanted to buy something, I wouldn't probably wouldn't put it into my work laptop and put my card details. So I think it'd be interesting to see sort of the transition.
0: Uh, and it's interesting you bring up the sort of Amazon one click feature because the IP around that the patent has just expired. So actually always is about to expire I don't remember the exact date but it essentially enables all merchants in order to be able to deliver that. So it's interesting that actually a combination of this and the ability to put a to put your card details in once very easily uh, because you 're using Chrome Safari or you know whatever browser you 'd like in order to do that, combine them with the ability for now every retailer to have that one click you know functionality means that you may only put your card details in once into Chrome you select or, or Safari like David. Um, Am
2: I I the only one who uses Safari stuff? In the world. Really? In the world.
1: (laughs) Thank you,
0: Apple, for making it just for me. Um, But that that gets interesting then, that you never type it in. You know, you type it in once, you select it, you press the button, and now every retailer uses one-click uh, and away you go.
3: And that's also, I think, that's where it becomes a bit dangerous as well, right? Because then, <laughs> then I just think, oh, I'm not really buying anything. I'm just kind of putting it into my lovely basket. And then suddenly you look at your your bank statement, and you realise actually, especially I after a, lot of
0: a <laughs> few drinks on a Friday night. <laughs>
3: exactly. I mean, this is the thing. It's going to be interesting to see if you know how it translates. Uh, you know, and and whether retailers will see an increase in in sales because you won't have that drop off.
1: Dangerous or
3: profitable?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a matter of perspective, isn't dangerous it? Dangerous or fun? Yeah. yeah. I, I think I think we should do a, a poll on that though. Like I, I'm. Convinced that nobody actually knows He's what card, Safari. Oh. Uh, psh, <laughs> and nobody actually knows what card they've got on record at Amazon. I, I think that's a, like
1: I, I almost yeah, don't. Yeah, I do. Really? <laughs> yeah. Pick which one I use depending on where i'm at in the month really? um, what for Amazon, yeah,
2: I just like pre- Uber. I, I just press that one click button and it's like it arrives in my house. i don't worry about the all right <laughs> money bag <back. laughs> <laughs> moving on, something submitted to fintechinsidernews.com
0: by i don 't know someone called Val Christensen. <laughs> Who can uh, that be? I don't know. Uh, dun, dun, so the story is uh, this: five point three billion dollar offer for Nets is the latest sign of a payments M and A binge. Valentina,
3: yeah, I mean this one. This one caught my eye just because. Um, so I'm, I'm Danish. So Nets is a very big uh, Scandinavian-based um, uh, payment services provider. They've got about twenty four hundred employees. They do about seven billion uh, transactions a year, um, and basically uh, U.S. private equity firm Hellman Friedman, which has. A a very diverse portfolio, so investments in sort of NASDAQ and um, Formula One, and they have essentially made a five point three billion dollar. Uh, take a bit. Um, and I think it's just, and you know, I think David actually commented on this, just saying that it's another example of the sort of merging of payments providers in the market. You've seen so much The CA, obviously, and financial was trying to, uh, is, is currently uh, going through the, the process of taking over a money gram. PayPal's acquired Swift, obviously, they're not they're not a payments provider, but it's still, they're sort of more and more of these providers, I think you're going to see. And uh, it's a bit like the banking sector. You know, if you look 400 years ago, there were loads of providers in the UK, loads of banks in the UK, and now there's sort of the big five, and then ask Nice.
1: And what I like about this one is because Nets have been uh, in analyst reports, uh, if you look at their annual reports and the analyst responses to them, for some time people have been saying that they're a potential acquisition target, that's why their share price is interesting and so on. They're a good business, very profitable, uh, year over year, little bits of growth in a great market that adopts card payments really well in in Scandinavia. Uh, They've been quite innovative without being uh, unsafe. They're they're not on the top of a list of companies that you've heard about breaches and like heartland payment systems in the u.s and several others so this is kind of slap bang in the middle of they're not a quote-unquote fintech they're an oldie worldie payments vendor but they're an effective one Uh, and what's private equity going to do in a market like scandinavia that has been very very uh, fast to adopt things like swish customer kyc uh, some of the bank id type stuff we've seen over there like what are they going to do i'm really excited to see with private equity cash what's their growth potential are they going to take nets into new markets as a as a payments processor are they going to look to uh develop new products for scandinavia uh i'm, I'm going to watch this one closely because i'm a payments nerd uh, and see what happens well it's interesting that the fintechs that have been spun off of banks that have been the most
0: successful are in that sort of venmo clone territory yeah. swish uh vips yeah. uh, tiki but uh, from abn amro there's this almost model that people are following of, actually, there is this need for this peer-to-peer payment thing, even in pretty evolved uh, territories, and banks can get together in order to make that happen pretty quickly – but still, that's a territory by territory model, and you've got to think that there's some there's something powerful in starting to pull those together and make it happen.
2: But I, I think those things are sort of dwarfed by this, though, aren't they? Like the like you say, like the MoneyGrams and the and and these guys, and uh, even into um, WorldPay. You know, actually, with everything that's gone on, like these are like big big organizations I, I think my my point was for every sort of big company that's bought there's a bunch of people leave to go and start something new and, and, I, and I think the you know on, on, particularly on this story i kind of think with with all of the sort of regulatory changes since actually a lot of these companies have actually been created and actually obviously technology becoming cheaper and easier to kind of get into then you know what's going to be the the sort of Uh, interesting sort of saplings that are going to be grown off the back of this one. Because I I kind of think, you know, payments has been an area that's been sort of continually disrupted. That actually, with what we've seen with people like Klarna, you know, you can just scale ridiculously quickly in this space. So, you know, this is 5.3 billion, great what's going to kind of grow off the back of this would be the interesting thing
0: well i guess then moving on to the big daddy of them all the alipay story we can't do an episode i think without doing an alipay story and this was submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by jeff teeson of capco our friend and show uh, co-show host at some point. I think yeah, okay. Alipay strikes more overseas partnerships. If you could get a more generic headline that could be used every week, <laughs> I, I challenge you to come up with
1: one. So, Simon, yeah, it's the ongoing trend, right? So, Alipay here has forged relationships with some government organisations that handle trade and commerce in Finland and Sweden. So, yeah, as you say, as we're continuing the Scandinavian theme here. If it happens, apparently they'll have access now to two point four billion bank accounts and mobile accounts across 200 countries. I think there's some PR stuff going on there. <laughs> I mean, yes, we've talked again, as, as Vantina mentioned, about the uh, potential acquisition of MoneyGram that they've been trying to get done. Uh, but the real key here is this is the continuation of their strategy. They, they have a giant home market, and what they're trying to do is follow the tourism. As Chinese tourists leave, they're going through all of the popular destinations and trying to follow those tourists. And they've been quite open about this being their strategy. In fact, Rita Liu, the head of uh, rest of the world outside of China for uh, Alipay... The head of the rest of the world. <laughs> uh, that was a shorter way of saying it, believe it or not, uh, without naming every continent. Uh, she talked about that on a previous FinTech Institute episode I can't remember which number it was but they've been really clear that that's their strategy but the thing I haven't seen them do yet is establish a foothold locally in market. They've struggled to really get taken up in Africa. They've struggled to really get taken up anywhere they've gone outside of that home base. So, yeah, they've got access to 2.4 billion bank accounts, but they're not really taking hold in India, although they've got the part acquisition in PayTM and they're, they're not really taking hold outside of that. So, follow the tourist is nice, but. I
0: think they're taking hold everywhere. And it's not just that they're. But I'm not I think saying this, that in the numbers. this follow the tourism thing is step two that is here's, here's the you know the grand master takeover ha. plan now we're gonna buy everything yeah so one start in china become dominant two then convince every other country in the world that they should implement your payment scheme in the big retailers because we're china and all of our, our people come over and buy stuff from you step three oh look we're accepted by all of the big retailers and we're a new scheme take over the world like um, st- and step two point one is probably invest in and or buy uh, p- similar players in similar territories. I mean, this is you know that's the the plan that I think everyone's seeing coming, and no one is is being able to do anything about.
2: I I call bullshit on this strategy of don't worry, we're just doing it for tourists. It'll just be fine. <laughs>
4: there like, are just 500 millions the of them. <laughs> but they haven't
1: acquired the things yet. They, they've struggled to get MoneyGram. They, When I see those acquisitions coming through, then it'll happen. To Jason's point, yeah, I'm sure it will happen. Step two is coming, but I'm not seeing it in the numbers yet. I'm not seeing it. The, companies that are doing well bend over backwards to show you their metrics and go, hey, the metrics speak for themselves. Companies that aren't getting traction never show you their metrics.
4: This is a company valued at 470 billion all
1: right, so they're doing all right, but they've got a heck of a home market. That's like,
4: traction.
1: They've got a billion people in their home market.
4: That's attraction. Yeah. But it,
0: I guess you know the one one hope against this mammoth takeover move is that when you've got open banking APIs and you've got actually bank to bank transfers from where my salary goes in every month to be able to then instantly pay to other people's bank accounts. You know that's interestingly a payment scheme alternative that's evolving as an open ecosystem uh, and against a, you know, a giant behemoth of, a, of an organisation. You know, maybe the, the coalition of everyone in this open ecosystem will, will in some way balance that. <laughs> Moving on. So submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by Thomas. He's like Prince. He just has one name. Mm. That's him. Uh, Aussie banks scrap ATM fees. David.
2: Yeah, I think this is a, quite an interesting one. Actually, the uh, Australian banks have been pretty well protected. For it, it's like that Galapagos Islands thing, you know. It's they've been pretty well protected until the uh, sort of uh, changing of the regulatory landscape and actually where customers' expectations are. So um, these guys have been getting away, from from what I understand, from a. a, a pretty uh, pretty robust briefing from our friends at RFI Media Group today in terms of the Australian market then uh, you know the uh, views of um pretty poor technology has allowed them to get away with uh, two dollar fee for every cash transaction that was actually being taken out this is kind of being scrapped in most of those cases although it still feels like there's probably a few areas where uh, where it's not going to be this is going to cost them 130 million pounds of revenue uh, in terms of scrapping these fees but it feels like the type of thing where i'm like Really, in this day and age, charging people $2 to get their money out of a cash machine feels weird to me.
3: Well, there are a couple of things. I mean, firstly, it said only $130 million, as if it's very marginal. You know, that's that's the. Yeah. Like, yeah. um, but I mean, even, you know, I just thought when I read this, I was like, I mean, I don't remember. I mean, the last time I went to an ATM was actually today. And I was really annoyed because I was, I needed to get my heel rehealed. And the guy wouldn't, uh, he doesn't take card, he only took cash. So I was like, oh, God, I don't even know where the nearest cash machine is. So I had to go and then take the money out. It was quite nice. I did get the first like ten new ten pound notes. So I got a, got a chance to see that. So that Ooh, was that was sort of,
2: And then you oh, had yeah. to give it away. Oh. I know. <laughs>
3: yeah. So so you know, but that was. I, I was kind of thinking you know, I mean, do people actually how many people actually use cash, you know, I mean and, and go to an ATM and I was thinking, you know, when I was uh, you know, going to Japan earlier this year, I used my Monzo card and I was sort of taking cash out largely because I thought, yeah, I'm not going to get charged overseas. So that was more oh, of Oh, you're the... one
1: of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But,
3: but you know, I, mean, I, thought, I was just wondering when I read that article, I thought, you know, how people actually uh, actually use ATMs really. Uh,
1: going back to sort of Scandinavia and Europe generally, we are a very cashless society as, as societies going, especially in our fintech bubble, we do think that way. But not every market's the same. Australia and especially the US are still quite cash heavy in in, in their usage. They still make up uh, nearly 50% of all retail transactions, if not more in in 50, 60, 70% in some countries. But only because it feels really good to carry dollar bills. Like you can carry (laughs) a big wad and feel like super The old greenback just has, yeah, I blame hip hop for that uh, entirely. But this is, I think there's a different trend here of removing fees as a business model like this is something we've talked about a lot uh, and uh, the this idea that fees are the way i make money from people it, it feels like it's passe now it works it's effective sometimes you have to do it sometimes you've got a cost and some but the atm fee in your own country for non-customers is the kind of thing that they, I think, if I remember correctly, somebody's probably going to correct me here that the UK banks tried to introduce maybe 5-10 years ago and then there was such a public backlash against it that they, they actually didn't get away with it uh, and maybe it's just kind of one of those things that uh, it's just a sign of the times that because getting access to your own money from uh, your bank's card albeit in somebody else's ATM just seems ridiculous and this isn't one of those ATMs that sits inside like a retail store or a convenience this is not- isn't a
0: late night. I have, I've had a few drinks and I'm willing to accept £2.50 in charges because to get I money need out. that kebab.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tuesday this week, is that
0: <laughs> <it>? <laughs> I, I can neither confirm nor deny that rumour. So before we move on to the next story, we'd love to hear from our sponsors.
3: The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today search for FT subscription.
1: Fintech innovation is changing the way we bank. And the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital. Onboarding the right fintech partners can take months. Do you have time to lose? Introducing the Innovation Acceleration Platform from Temenos. Test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system. With a yearly subscription, you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time. For more details, visit marketplace.temenos.com.
0: Thanks, as always, to our sponsors. And just quickly, before we get back into the news, we never have enough time to cover every news story that's happened in the week. Uh, But don't forget, you can head over to fintechinsidernews.com to read more about the stories we discussed and lots more besides. You can sign up, join in the discussion, really get involved. And who knows, maybe you'll be mentioned on the podcast. So tell us what you thought about this this week's stories and really get involved with the debate. That's fintechinsidernews.com. So moving on the first story of our next segment deloitte hit by cyber attack revealing client secret emails who gets
2: this poison chalice david gets the gets the story to tell all about. right i'll step up to the mic first on this one and it's actually kind of quite an interesting one it's it's amazing what is called a cyber attack these days really isn't it you know because essentially i'm not too sure if you guys have read through this this is essentially somebody not turning two step verification on on uh, the admin for email and that is considered a cyber attack in terms of the
1: the sort of simple nature of actually getting through these things. I do think, though, that that's the kind of thing that should be becoming hygiene right now. And their password was admin too. No,
2: I'm joking. It wasn't. Really... <laughs> but but I, I think the you know the severity of this one probably can't be understated, given the the sort of what Deloitte do. But at the same time, just part and parcel of like living on the internet and being part of the the sort of digital world means that things like this are going to happen. And I, I don't think it's necessarily what happens when it does. It's actually how you respond to that and actually how you sort of, you know, talk to people about it. What do you think, Andrew?
4: Uh, so I think it's quite an unfortunate thing to happen to Deloitte, especially because they are uh, the most profitable security consulting uh, services in the world, if you didn't know. Uh, so apparently, they, they, they said that it, it was due to an admin account somewhere in Nashville. So this is where that attack started. And they don't know exactly if they uh, kicked out the, the, um, uh, the hackers yet. What I find very interesting is that after the attack, the security researchers have combed the internet for for info to see if they find something, and they found that a Deloitte employee wrote the um, Deloitte VPN access controls on his personal Google um, account. Oh they also found yeah they also and they were there for 6 months and they also found that thousands of hosts were exposed to the internet unnecessarily so the attack happened uh, through the remote desktop protocols more, most likely it's, uh, it was brute yeah a yeah, brute force attack on on that it is double uh, or triple uh, unlucky for the Deloitte employees because in 2014, during the Sony hack, um, what was uh, made also public was a file with all the salaries and the names of the Deloitte employees. Uh, so a former employee of Deloitte was ha- was in working in Sony and had this file on his computer. So imagine if you blend the data, what was hacked during this email attack? What was uh, the, the information about about position salaries and so on, plus the Equifax stuff.
1: Well, so that's the thing here, isn't it? We've seen not just Equifax and the Deloitte and Sony, but we've also had uh, Verifone, DocuSign and many others just this year. It, it, that blending of the data, it, if I go and buy... All of that data combined, what can I do with it? I guess the challenge there is, though, how this data is sold on dark markets is usually piecemeal, and it's not cheap. The people who hack this are hacking it for profit. They hack that data, and then they hoard it, and then they sell it on dark markets. So actually getting access to this as as one big file, the the fear that people have about that, some people will want to expose it. Some activists will want to expose some some of the bits and pieces. But then there is, and I'm sure there's a lot of people just dumping data, but that's not always the case.
4: Yeah.
3: And I think also that, you know, sometimes we get hackers a little bit too much credit i mean a lot of the time it's just ba- it's just human error right i right. mean then and, and obviously working in a bank i have, i didn't really realize this it was this, this is the first bank that i worked at full time and when i joined i had to go through loads of, of sort of tests uh, around cyber security to make sure that i was sort of protecting the bank and it'd be just interesting to, you know a lot of things a lot of businesses haven't really thought about that you know whether it's and whether how often
1: that should change that set yeah. test because it's not the same test that you did last year or the year before it needs to evolve every year
0: but the and but the internet and in the Way that we interact with the internet is so open. Everyone has emails, there are attachments, there are you know all kinds of ways of transferring and moving files that that we need to work in order to work to to do business because it's becoming uh, a world of partnerships and platforms and actually interacting with other businesses and you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg with GDPR coming in next year and the the need then to actually report data breaches. Like, I think that the... the isolated events you're seeing now are going to become a snowstorm because the complexity of the number of systems that are out there, the millions of people who are working in all of these companies who are interacting in different ways to try and get their work done and uh, therefore being open to this kind of attack, is it, this is just going to be a common thing. Like, I just don't think it, we're going back to a world of p- pure security. We're going to a world of data breach as an everyday occurrence. And on that lovely note, <laughs> let's move on to our next story, submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by our very own Michael Bailey. Thank you, Michael. Uh, CBS's Showtime caught mining crypto coins in
2: viewers' web browsers. Yikes. So, David. I think this is amazing. Like well, so just just to sort of recap on this, somebody's uh implemented some javascript code on two of primetime's biggest websites to use idle time for processors to be mining this this sort of cryptocurrency. You know, who's the criminal? Who's being punished in this one? Because it, it's using idle time. They were saying, a, unfortunately, it's using up to about 60% of the CPU capacity, which is... It's stealing prob- electricity. Probably
1: a little bit. Yeah, but they're watching TV. This is just happening in the background. So, like, who who's being sort of punished for this? Well, malware's been doing this forever, though. You go to some dodgy website, uh, if you... Daft enough to do that. You go to some dodgy website. You go. <laughs> I go to some dodgy website. One, one goes to a dodgy yeah, website.
3: One at, someone.
1: One goes to a dodgy website, and they would experience the suddenly. Oh, I wonder. I mean, my parents have been turned on. Do you I know what, why this. It, is? It, my parents are the worst for this. Uh, especially my. They go step- to dodgy websites. No. Like, <laughs> Finally, we talk about Simon's mum. <laughs> my mum's brilliant. She's an angel don 't you dare, uh, but it, it would usually or it would be some family member who's like, "Why is my laptop going really slow and i 'm like, "Well, have you been trying to stream movies off the off the sites you found off the top link on google and it 's like yes, if you try and just get content by doing those shortcuts you 're going to end up on some website where there 's a load of malware now historically." that malware was just doing a ddos attack it was just trying to ping somebody's internet server to knock it over if it was Amazon's server or uh, lloyds server or some bank server but now these people who are on the dark web have found a different thing to do if i can put an insert into a website instead of just trying to ddos somebody i can why don't i mine cryptocurrencies okay. that'd be a good way to make some money and and what i love about this is I'm gonna diatribe, David. I'm gonna do it. Don't, don't stop me in full flow, bro. Don't stop me. I'm going. What I love about this is, like, I know this is a bit of a bit of a leap, but we've seen that uh, ad blockers have been really big in the tech space as a as a conversation for the last twelve months. And what's interesting about that is, when I ever go to uh, Business Insider or Fortune, it's like, hey, turn your ad blocker off because we kind of need some revenue. Well. What about mining cryptocurrencies whilst you're on a website as a way of paying for it? In fact, there's a website called Steemit that has this internal currency to pay for content. I do think there's a new business model underneath here. It just happens to being being exploited by people uh, that are doing it in a malicious way, which, again, doesn't help the view of cryptocurrencies being, ooh, scary bad. But there's ingenuity here. But it's a victimless crime, surely. It's like, not you know, a victimless crime. My CPU's only got so
0: much life. For. Yeah, the annoyance of suddenly your entire PC slows down, and you're like, "What? Why can't I use this Word document or Excel? Or oh, I've got my browser open in the background, and it's mining Monero." Yeah,
2: but it's, it's, <laughs> it's idle CPU. It's not
0: idle. So, but, but, it's stuff like, that I can't was... use because I'm because something else is
2: using it. But it, but if this was like unlocking the DNA, like in terms of you know like mapping DNA in terms of how that w- that was done prior to it. Yeah, but it's not. Expanding our galaxies. (laughs) Literally, they're making money. Like, what's wrong with this? This seems like an amazing
1: thing. Yeah, but you could be making money and they are. So, I'm just saying, every 11FS laptop, it's on there. (laughs) I do my own security, bro. I feel
3: like there would be a really good Black Mirror episode in here somewhere.
1: There you go. There you go.
0: So, moving on from one uh, unethical comment by a CEO to
1: uh, Equifax boss leaves after data breach. Wow, that was Simon. that was smooth, dude. Do you like that? Yeah, that was good. <laughs> he's, become, he's trying to take that Segway King title away from me. So yeah, as we know, Equifax had uh, a big, big data breach. 143 million Americans were impacted, uh, and around 400,000 people in the UK. Uh, the data captured included social security numbers, birth dates, addresses, and driving licenses. And as we know, Equifax are one of the major credit rating agencies. So every time you go to get a financial services product, and they do the credit referencing check on you. Can you have a loan? Can you get a credit card? They're calling Equifax or Call Credit or Experian, and they're one of those three companies. So this is quite a major part of financial services for any lending product that's done either in the US or Europe. Uh, But what's interesting here as well is because the bosses left, three senior executives sold shares worth nearly $1.8 million before the breach was publicly disclosed. Apparently the CEOs agreed to stay on as an unpaid advisor during the transition, but I got to think like if there was ever insider trading that the SEC is going to look at, like knowing your share price is going to drop on selling shares, although our analyst Benedict suggested it wasn't a lot of shares that they held that was, was sold,
4: but still yeah and I think it was not only this as a i mean many people classify Equifax um, reaction as misconduct for a number of things so they uh, they knew for forty days so more than one month that the hack happened, and they didn 't inform anybody they didn 't inform people. What I find astonishing these people that they call customers they are not customers because they want to do business with Equifax. If you want it or you don't want it, you are a customer of of Equifax. You are the product. Yeah. So they were treated with disrespect then they put on twitter a link when they announced they announced to everybody and they put a twitter on link which was a a, a phishing link so go here
0: (laughs) and put your details in to find out if you've been hacked harm yourself
4: yeah harm yourself even (sighs) even more and then in the process of signing up you would give up your rights to go to court against them if if uh, something happened i was like what?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, if you were a sort of experience you'd sort of think this is the gift that keeps on giving. Just every every week or every day, there seems to be some something else that's you know horrific that they've done uh, to manage this this crisis. And one thing I did think, which was um, which was quite uh, interesting, it was a, a sort of follow on article, um, uh, an op-ed um, from Elizabeth Warren. She's a U.S. senator in, in Forbes, and she was talking about how she's um, she started uh, a Freedom from Equifax Exploitation Act, which I thought was really interesting. It's that yeah. the Free Act, um, essentially, where you you can, uh, you're sort of saying, all your information is so valuable, so actually, you know, these, these companies are making billions of dollars a year off of selling your data to, you know, credit card providers and banks, uh, and they're saying, you know, this is a way to make money out of that. I can see loads of hands Exactly,
0: <laughs> because, uh, and what's interesting here is that those credit agencies are being attacked on a number of sides. On one hand, you've got things like GDPR, you've got the push towards privacy, I own my own data, which arguably the credit agencies you know, go against. Is there any uh, request that actually by applying here, therefore you put something that's in some database in a far off land? But secondly, you've got uh, you know, the credit reference agencies use the way that you've applied for previous financial products as a way of actually defining whether you're a risk or not. And we're moving into a world of, Of deep data, of wide data, of the ability to look at whether you buy Rolos or Twix or something at a candy store, you know, in order to work out whether you're a good, you know, you're a good bet or not. So you've got lots of banks, lenders, financial services companies looking at ways of training a model that once it gets pretty good, it's going to be better than the credit reference agencies. And then all of a sudden, like that,
1: that's that gone, isn't it? Absolutely. If Equifax and the credit rating agencies in general were better at their job, They, in the age of data as the new oil, they'd be one of the top ten companies in the world. Uh, because really the companies that are exploiting data are the likes of Google and Amazon and Facebook and so on. That advertising revenue model is the biggest thing happening in the western economy. And so they have not moved with the times both in terms of their business model and in terms of their security. And I think they're being found out. Data squat and um, mining that data as a business model for the likes of a Google can be remarkably profitable if you keep up with the times. If you don't, then yes. I I mean, I've talked with a number of um, financial services organizations like, what do we actually need the credit referencing agencies for? We get a score from them, but then we end up having to ask for so much more information to be able to decide whether or not it's one component in A much bigger piece and surely this is something that would either a be decentralized or b be something i would do through api calls and why do i need a credit reference agency in this day and age and we leave it on that.
0: Moving on to the next story, submitted to fintechinsidernews.com by Jamie Hill. Uh, payment by vein, trialed in supermarket. Is this some kind of vampire payment mechanism, <laughs> Valentina?
3: So if you've seen the picture, you sort of stick your finger in this little capsule and then it, it will tell you whether or not it's it's really you. It kind of made me think, you know, like when I, with my iPhone, right? So it's, it's, it's enabled through through my fingerprint. And, you know, if I'm eating, like, a, a you know, a pack of crisps or something, and then I try to get into my phone, I can't. I've got, like, Dorito dust left on my finger, and I can't get into my phone. I was thinking, you know, this is going to be... It can actually slow down the process. You know, if I was picturing going on the tube, and someone's, you know, trying to put their finger, and it's not scanning, at least with an Oyster card, you know, or contactless payment, you know you're going to go through, and there's not going to be any, you know, grubby finger nonsense.
1: I utterly despise this thing. Like... <laughs> I, I can't tell you how much I hate it. Somebody somewhere... So this is uh, Barclays that are pushing this on their corporate customers. And God bless the shock for he's, uh, he's He's in this article on the BBC saying, I can see why a number of corporate customers might like having a new way of authenticating payments. Now... This device has been around for some time. It's Hitachi that are the people that are hawking this thing, and I'm sure there's something going on for them to try and push it. As Valentina said, it's this big, ugly, clunking thing that nobody wants to use. And my issue is, what problem does this solve for consumers that isn't already solved? And I get it. Somebody somewhere likes that technically I can tell the person's alive so it's slightly better than just a fingerprint scanner. But like oh my god this is so lame it's like that kind of thing that a big old company does for no good reason for no business case that like okay, if, well, if, if Google or somebody or Apple were adopting I'm gonna try this and,
0: I'm going to try and defend this
1: so give it so, a go so, it's so. indefensible man <laughs> So we
0: like the story of Alipay in that healthy KFC in China that was using face facial recognition. You walk into the store, it uses facial, facial recognition to see you, and then use your phone number to verify that it's you. And this isn't so different. You know, in some way, with tokenized card numbers, with different ways of doing payment – It gets to the point where you don't need to bring your card out. Actually, all I need to do is I go down to, you know, Tesco or Sainsbury's. I pick up my stuff. I put my finger in the thing. I either say something or put my phone number in. I don't need a card anymore. It's actually biometrics as a payment mechanism. And it is more effective than fingerprints because you can see the flow through. And I can feel like the whole room against me here. But I'm going to defend this
1: sucker, even though I'm not sure I agree with it. Okay, let's go, to Andrew, here. I have so much more to say. But, Andrew, I can <laughs> no, feel no, you need... One,
4: one comment. So, two comments, actually. First, I'm not a big fan of biometrics in, in this way. So, we just discussed about two big hacks, uh, Equifax and Deloitte and so on. So, the point is, you just have one... Print for those veins or for your heartbeat or for your eyes. Or, when that is compromised, you cannot change your password. You cannot change your eyes, your fingers, your heartbeat. Or, or we just
1: go around the body. We um, then do so, like so arm so veins in, in and leg veins. Wonder, that's not true because the idea here is whilst you can't change your fingerprint, your fingerprint has to be alive and you have to be in that moment using your fingerprint now what you might mean is that the fingerprint on the back end so somebody's yeah, taken the key yeah, yeah, to your fingerprint yeah, yeah, yeah. right yeah, 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 but yeah, yeah, and that yeah. that assumes that there's no ease
0: that yeah. someone doesn't come up with a way of just faking the pre- presentation of it with you know just pumping something but through i think a, the back end is more risky
4: this is what i meant because in order to authenticate you they have a a copy or your signature, which could be your heartbeat, your foot, your your footprint. <laughs> your, <laughs> maybe that's the next step. Uh, the, your fingerprint or whatever. They have to have something to authenticate you against. And as we have seen, big, big, big companies get uh, hacked, attacked, and so on. That's one thing. And the second one was, I think it's innovation theater. You know. Yeah, of course. Uh, because I, uh, when uh, Lloyd did the heartbeat authentication two years ago, Honestly, it went. It went, like uh, it was hundred times. I think hundreds of times more uh, quoted than any other prototype we, we have done. Oh, and you we were looking like, what is this? It's on TV in Israel. It, I don't know. It was, uh, uh, and there was. It was an experiment in a room like this. You know, nothing else. And I
3: think, you know, I completely, I completely, you know, um, sympathize with the whole innovation theater point. I think if it's solving a real problem, like when I call up my bank and then I can just say one sentence and I go straight into uh, having a normal conversation with them rather than having to answer 50 security questions, that's, that's helpful. Um, but I mean, there's always potentially a way around it. I mean, I think it was six months ago or so, there was a Fenextra story about, um, someone getting into an Atom Bank account by using a, a picture of the person, um, rather, you know, rather sort of taking a selfie to get into the account. So I think there's, you know, if you create, it, there might potentially then just be more ways to hack into, into someone's account.
1: Biometrics are about ease of use, not necessarily increased security. And ease of use is is a really key point. And I, what I think about a proprietary bit of hardware from one vendor that isn't standardized, that isn't used by the technology companies, that isn't uh, low cost and available to everyone everywhere, it's really difficult to imagine what the customer journey is for that and i i can't remember to, to uh, andrew's point the the type of innovation theater i can't remember an event for clients that barclays has done that hasn't had this thing at it for some time and i think it appeals to a certain uh, middle middle-aged executive who goes <laughs> oh it's slightly more secure than uh, fingerprints because you have to be alive oh wow but like And it doesn't change
0: our business model. So it's that great kind of like piece of innovation that's a, you know, a technological breakthrough. Something's a bit different. It doesn't change the way that I have to, you know, manage my business. This is great. So now I'm thinking like, as well as building and launching like proper propositions for banks, we should launch like an innovation theatre division of 11FS.
1: Uh, you know how much... So there was a famous quote by Warren... If you
0: go, well, if you're going to really go for it, like, really go for it, it's like we won't even pretend that that division does anything interesting apart from the craziest tech stories that are
1: going to get the most column inches. There's a famous quote by Warren Buffett that in the 1930s, because there were uh, several thousand car companies and by the 1950s there were seven, uh, that you could make more money uh, shooting horses than you could by starting a car company because your car company was likely to... To go bust, but shooting horses was a profitable business model. This is shooting stupid ideas that come out of innovation theater are a great way to stop burning money that you probably shouldn't be burning when your return on equity isn't great as a as a region.
3: This could be the next uh, emoji, emoji wall, you know, just get all of these, these different ones and get people to vote as to which one is the, the absolute yeah, but they're, they're worst. They're all going to
0: be down the crazy <laughs> end. like we're going to have to recalibrate the emoji yeah, wall just like into really bad to, like extra really bad to <laughs> super bad. So on that, like, let's leave on a positive note, because I sense that Simon's like, you know, you, you've, you've, you've reached that kind of frustration with the industry
1: point now. but this story is the best thing ever 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 and i gotta thank harriet for sending this to me because it was just unbelievable there's a family of raccoons has shut down a toronto bank i haven't read this story (laughs) i don't care a family of raccoons has shut down a toronto bank i think it's a bank branch not not an actual bank itself but I love that in this day and age, a family of raccoons could be in there trying to steal crisps, you know, causing havoc. And it looks like, uh, so this comes from blogto.com. Uh, and let's try and read this one very, very quickly. Because it was news <laughs> just Wait, in. Hold on. We're recording a podcast and you're reading a new random sure this story. this is fake
3: news. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was sent to us in real time. I don't care if it's fake news. Um, the branch manager offers some suggestions on nearby locations and ATMs due to some unexpected repairs that arose as a, from a family of raccoons making our ceiling their new home. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> So apparently the, the branch manager, Stephen Clark
0: offers customers suggestions on nearby locations at ATMs due to those unexpected repairs that arose from a family of raccoons making the ceiling their new home. The fallen RBC branch is expected to be closed until the end of October. Well, it's just a, a nice Canadian
1: thing, isn't it? And a customer appreciation party will be held when it reopens. What Stephen Clark didn't say, which I expected to, to hear from, uh, from a Canadian bank, was sorry.
0: Uh, and on that note this wraps up another new show as always if you want to get in touch you can find us on twitter at fintech insiders or on facebook on our fintech insider page if you like what you've heard this week don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and if we deserve it please leave us a good review on itunes those five star reviews really do help we believe digital transformation hasn't worked in the world and needs a challenger consultancy and we're it. We work with financial services companies to help them execute and deliver digital products that meet a real customer need. And like those innovation stories we've just spoken about. So check out 11FS.com to find out more. And don't forget to check back on our careers page because, as David says, he's spending most of his days doing interviews at the moment. Thanks for listening. And before we go, it'd be great to hear from our guests as to where you can find out more and find out what, what's happening. Valentina.
3: Um, yeah, so if you uh, want to find out more about uh, Oak North, you can visit our website, uh, www.oaknorth.com, uh, and we're on, on all the social channels as well, so Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, and if you want to connect with me directly, I'm on LinkedIn and at Val Christensen on Twitter.
0: And you're head of marketing there. Yes, exactly. And Oak North is a lender, so why, why would I go and look to Oak North?
3: So Oak North is a bank focused specifically on helping fast growth companies uh, scale up. So really businesses that are sort of past the startup phase, uh, earning sort of 5 million to 100 million turnover and looking for about half a million to 20 million uh, in terms of debt finance. Cool. And Andra.
4: Well, they find me at eleven FS for the near future anyway. Um, so, if you want to build a bank, if you need um. advice about your core banking architecture and so on, I'm here.
1: The more I listen to Andra, the more I just get drawn into <laughs> your world of like <laughs> intrigue. It's fantastic. And Simon, where can people find out about you? Oh, at S Y Taylor on Twitter. But don't forget, we have a sister show as well called uh, Blockchain Insider, and at B Chain Insider on Twitter, you can find out more. You can find it in. IG. Actually, Blockchain Insider is one of my favourite podcasts at the moment. And that's not nepotism. You're like
0: being genuine No, no, no. Really genuinely. It's such a bizarrely Wild West world of a subject. It fascinates. It should be like a soap or a Netflix series. It's just so, so crazy. And me, you can find me at at Jason Bates on Twitter. And of course, come and find us at 11fs.com. That's it for this week. Hopefully we'll talk to you next week. Bye.